Welcome to All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light driving scientific innovation in the 21st century. I'm Joel Williams, Associate Editor at Photonics Media. Join us as we explore the latest trends in optics, lasers, microscopy, and spectroscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape, brought to you by Photonics Media. Through 49 episodes of All Things Photonics, Photonics Media has provided intimate conversations with guests in more than a dozen countries and across 20 time zones. Geography was never a principal consideration, although we quickly realized that the photonics ecosystem can only be truly explored through a commitment to exploring perspectives from those around the globe. It's something that has become a core commitment since we launched the podcast nearly three years ago. While some photonics luminaries are more tied to their environment than others, we knew that our conversation with today's featured guest would take us somewhere we've yet to travel. That place is the east-central Louisiana town of Bunky. The town of roughly 3300 is home to Isaiah Warner, one of the world's most acclaimed contributors to fluorescence spectroscopy and fluorescence chemistry. Warner's story, as he'll tell it, is uniquely multifaceted. As a scientist, Warner is a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors and Royal Society of Chemistry, and has received numerous awards of prestige from the ranks of the Governor of Louisiana and the President of the United States. The man whose own mentor held a second-grade education celebrated his retirement from Louisiana State University this January as one of science's most visible mentors of undergraduate, graduate, and doctorate-level student talent. Our conversation focuses both on Warner's science and his mentorship. As we explore the intersection of those most prominent aspects of his life, Warner recounts facts and figures that exemplify his impact on fluorescence and on education. We learn quickly that Isaiah Warner's story cannot be told in segments. We also learn that while mentorship may be part of his identity, it's just a piece of what defines the man. Our conversation with Isaiah Warner begins with a love for science, and a lesson in how not to perform analytical experimentation. Well, I was born in a small town called De Quincey, Louisiana, and at the age of about two, I moved to a town of uh, my mother and father divorced, and I moved. We, my mother moved to a small town of Bunky, Louisiana, both about five thousand or so in population, and um, that's where I was raised. And and really, uh, the environment there, in terms of work and that sort of thing was cotton environment. So I worked in the cotton fields for a long time. Uh, and I attended Carver High School, mostly Carver Elementary and Carver High School, graduated valedictorian of my class, had a love for science, and uh, moved on into science at Southern University. Schools were pretty much segregated then. And in fact, I had no other option. I was from a poor family and um, I'm a Southern University offered me a full scholarship. That's pretty much what I needed, a full scholarship or a full loan to attend college. And coming from the family I came from, I couldn't ask my parents to uh, pay for anything else, considering I had a full scholarship. One of the things that inspired me to go into college was I working in the cotton fields. You can imagine the Louisiana sun, maybe 95 degrees, humidity 95%. <laughs> That is torture. <laughs> that is literally torture. And I came home one day and told my grandmother, I am not doing this the rest of my life. I don't know what I'll do, but it won't be this. She said, what about teaching? I said, that sounds good to me. 
uh, anything but this, where I can work inside. Then I went on to Southern, graduated cum laude, majored in chemistry, height of the Vietnam War, and my draft board told me they were going to get me, and they tried their best. In fact, I come from the town of Avoyles Parish, where more than their share of Blacks were drafted and killed in Vietnam to satisfy a quota. And they told me they were going to get me, and I might as well sign up. I said, are you giving any kind of deferments? Well, we're giving deferments in the national interest, but you're not going to get one, so you might as well sign up. Well, a company named Battelle Northwest came to Southern and interviewed me. And before they made me an offer, I asked them, are you going to make me an offer? They said, yes. I said, have you lost anyone to the draft? They said, never. I said, well, I accept. Well, don't you want to know the salary? No, I accept. And this is literally the way the conversation went. Don't you want to see the site? Nope, I accept. And so I accepted a job. Didn't negotiate the salary, sight unseen, and as far away in the continental United States as I could get away from home. That was in the state of Washington, and that was about 2,000 miles away from home. Arrived in that new environment with a new wife, and it was uh, both culture shock for both of us because that was the first time in our lives we had ever lived in an integrated environment. All of our lives, we had been in a segregated environment. So we grew up together in that environment. My wife was 20, and I think I was 21. And we literally relied on each other. No family. few friends from college had also taken jobs up there. But um, worked there for five years. Hated it. Thought I hated chemistry. My wife worked for a psychologist. And I went to him. I said, give me an IQ test or something to tell me what I love because I hate chemistry. Uh, he gave me the test, came back two weeks later. He said, you're going to be surprised at the results. I said, no, I don't. Just tell me the results so I can go on with my life. He says, well, you're best suited to be a chemist. I said, how can that be? I hate my job. <laughs> and he pointed out, maybe you hate your job because you're nothing but a technician. Maybe you should go on and get a Ph.D. And that inspired me to go on and get a PhD, along with a few mentors. I'm writing a book, as a matter of fact, right now on mentoring, where I sort of go through my entire life period and indicate those persons who were there for me and who guided me along the path that I followed. Because uh, I didn't have educated people in my family. I'm the first in my immediate family to get a high school diploma and let alone a, a, a college degree and a PhD. My mother had an eighth grade education. My father had a ninth grade education. Later on, went on and got a GED. My grandmother who raised me had a third grade education. My uncle, whom I admired most, uh, had a second grade education. As far as I'm concerned, that man was a genius with his second grade education. But then I went on to work for Patel and left after five years went on and got my PhD at the University of Washington, then went on and uh, took a job at Texas A&M, actively recruited by the chair of that department. Otherwise, I may not have gone into academic if he had not been so forceful in the recruiting. The rest is history. I was at <laughs> Texas A&M for five years. Then uh, I was attracted by Emory University, stayed there 10 years, and then LSU, invited me back as an endowed chair to apply for a position. 
you told a uh, an interesting anecdote about a love of chemistry that was not really evident to you or detected at all until you had it literally tested out of you. Our podcast is a photonics podcast, and yet the word photonics, it's not really a word you have to know to appreciate some of the core technologies or applications that are adjacent to it or within it. All you have to know about is light, really, and appreciate that. Right. Light is something that has guided you for quite a while. And if you'd like to tell the kerosene story, I'm sure our audience would love to hear it. Well, that's exactly the story I thought about was the kerosene story was that I had a fascination with light from a very early age. I was two years old and electricity was unstable in Bunky, Louisiana back in those times. And uh, when the electricity would go out, my grandmother and mother would light up the room with kerosene lamps. And I was just fascinated by this, that you can put a match to something and all of a sudden the whole room lights up, even though electricity is off. And I continued to be fascinated by that. And, and they would always lock the kerosene away until one day they forgot to lock it away. And I decided I wanted to see what this odd smelling liquid was that was creating light. So I smelled it, and obviously it must have had an awful smell. And much, much of this was recounted to me by my grandmother many years later. And so apparently I decided to do my first analytical experiment, and I orally sampled the kerosene and ended up in the hospital. And uh, from that point on, I learned that oral sampling was not an analytical technique. Warner's fascination with light endured the kerosene experiment. As a student and young professional, it, in fact, inspired Dr. Warner's earliest works on topics in photonics ranging from fluorescence analysis and scanning fluorimetry to topics in chemistry, including liquid chromatography and phosphorometric analysis. Fluorimetry, specifically the technique of video fluorimetry, as a means to acquire and interpret multi-component fluorescence data, would become the subject of Warner's thesis. In this early chapter of Warner's career, a love for fluorescence veered into an appreciation for spectroscopy. Warner ultimately combined the two, cultivating a list of citations and achievements in fluorescence spectroscopy. Success was never guaranteed. I was exposed to many things in undergraduate school. and high school, we were limited because our high school was segregated. Super, there was a superintendent of education both for the white school and the black schools. And uh, the textbooks we had were textbooks that were hand-me-down from the white schools. We would get textbooks that might have six or seven names in them because after they were used for six or seven years or sometimes 10 years at the white schools, they were then given to the black schools. So I say that we were often six or seven years behind the white students in terms of uh, textbook knowledge. So I didn't have any exposure to light in high school, nor that I have any in uh, undergraduate school. It was in graduate school where I really uh, got influenced by uh, my research advisor and a colleague of his who was into fluorescence spectroscopy. And uh, I developed a technique which has influenced fluorescence instrumentation to this very day. In, in fact, the first person who thought of the concept of two-dimensional fluorescence spectroscopy was a scientist by the name of Gregorio Weber, and that was probably in the 50s. And uh, he thought of this 
fact that fluorescence is a function of both exciting light and emitting light. And so you can have a two-dimensional matrix, which has properties that can be evaluated using matrix algebra. No instrument really existed to do that until I came along and develop it for my graduate thesis and also develop algorithms to analyze the data. And so it was, I, I say, and I believe most people believe that that work, which was subsequently followed by other graduate students, and I continued it on in my, in my uh, own research program, that work has led to the fact that most instrumentation now will acquire data in a two-dimensional format. Are you, as you're, as you're progressing in your career and you're checking the boxes off in terms of your accomplishments and charting your own course, is it occurring to you that you are actively mentoring, you're actively innovating chemically? Are, are you cognizant of the achievements that you're, you're marking or are you just sort of in the moment there when you're... Um, well, I, I'm simply in the moment. I am not seeking any major achievement. That's one that I sought and and, and uh, have not uh, achieved and probably won't achieve, and that's being a member of the National Academy. But other than that, I've received pretty much every award that I could have ever hoped to achieve. And in terms of mentoring, I never thought of what I was doing as mentoring until a couple of things happened. After I left Texas A&M, I went on to Emory University, and suddenly the Black population of students started to grow at Emory because suddenly I had name recognition and people recognized my name and many minority students started to come to uh, Emory, not to the extent that they did at LSU. I'll tell you about LSU, that's a different story. But uh, I went to uh, a meeting of the National Organization of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineering, or National Organization, the more proper names, National Organization for the professional advancement of uh, black chemists and chemical engineering. And uh, I walked in with five students, all of whom were black. And this one, I don't remember exactly who it was, but I think it was an industry. And he turned and looked at me with these students. And he said, Isaiah Warner, the greatest mentor of all time. And I looked at him and I said, why is this guy making this statement? I've never even thought of myself as a mentor. And not too long after that, the faculty at Emory gave me my first evaluation. And in that evaluation, they said the way that Isaiah interacts with his students has made us all take a second look at how we interact with our students and want to do a better job. And again, I had never thought of myself as interacting in any special way. I was just doing things that were instinctive to me. But from that point on, with those two incidents, I started thinking about what am I doing different, you know, and I started paying attention to what other faculty were doing and those sort of things and, and recognize that I was indeed doing something different. What was it? To this day, I don't know what it is, <laughs> except that I know that I care about people and I care about students. I care about students trying to reach their full potential. In the optics and photonics field, a lot of what we talk about is a great need um, in the workforce for technicians. Um, and whether it's an organic or a manufactured dynamic, there is this reality that research and technician don't always go together. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that dynamic, um, because science doesn't advance without both of those sort of, without innovations on both of those sides. Yes. 
And basically, my job at Battelle was as a technician. And that's what I didn't accept because the way my mind worked, I didn't like doing routine stuff that someone would tell me, do this, and I go and do it. And they say, good job. Next day, I might repeat the same experiments or same sort of task. And I was bored with that sort of uh, task. And that's more of a technician's job. Now, there are some technicians who go beyond just a simple technician that they, they actually advance. And I met technicians who were really PhDs in terms of action. I mean, they were creating new knowledge and doing all the things that a PhD would do. But then there are other technicians who were perfectly satisfied in repeating the same experiments every day and generating the same kinds of results. So it depends on your personality and how satisfied you are with you, you, what you're doing. I want to talk about LSU and your time there, but also perhaps even more the environment, one that was there and that you were able to shape, but also the environment that you created for yourself that let you do all this tremendous work from start until I suppose this past January. Can you tell us about your your journey back to LSU and and sort of the uh, grassroots beginnings of how the work that in many ways defines your career began? I can remember coming in for an interview for the faculty position the first time. The chair of the department was walking around, showing me around. And he says, I guess the LSU has really changed since you were a youngster. And I looked at him and I could have blown the interview right there with my next statement. I said, be perfectly frank, I've never set foot on this campus uh, until now. He looked at me very strangely and turned blood red <laughs> because he realized, you know, I was going to lie about the, about the campus being segregated. And uh, in fact, it, it, I had been on the campus once, one other time, but that was after my PhD. I was looking to postdoc with a particular professor there. LSU's campus was totally unfamiliar to me because as an undergraduate, we had a joint meeting. I'm Catholic, and there's a club called the Newman Club, and we had a joint meeting with the uh, Newman Club at LSU, and that was on the edge of campus. That's as far as I'd ever been on campus before I graduated with my PhD. And so I come in, LSU has two African-Americans working toward a PhD that graduated a total of six African-Americans had gotten, obtained a PhD, one of whom I knew, well, several of whom I knew very well. I, one of whom was one of my teachers at Southern. Another was a colleague, my same age, around my same age from the Walsh Parish. He and I played baseball against each other. So I knew at least two of the six really well. So I come in in a program. They had never had more than three African-Americans working toward a PhD at one time. And they graduated a total of six African-American PhDs. I come in the first year, four African-Americans had applied to the graduate program. And when they heard I was coming, they all accepted. So you already had two. Those four made six. And then I came in with 10 graduate students, uh, five of whom were uh, African-American, half of whom were African-American. And so in a program that had never had more than three, they suddenly had 11. Then I became chair of the department two years later, and the numbers started to grow. I mean, we were having like 30-some African-Americans 
in, in our program, which was unheard of. So now, when I arrived, there were six total of African-Americans in the program. Now the number is approaching 100 African-Americans who received PhDs in chemistry. Warner's journey in the sciences alone is expansive. Though in some ways more by serendipity than by design, Warren's career is marked by advances targeting biomedicine, analytical and molecular chemistry, gas analysis, polymer science, and a host of additional application areas. This speaks both to a passion for discovery, as well as a willingness to be guided by science. It also speaks to a certain creativity. With this in mind, our question to Warner, how does he see himself? Fluorescence is my background. I, I continue to do that. But I tend to move in other areas about every 10 years. And there's a scientist who came to me, who well-known scientist, and he said one day, you know, I notice you tend to change fields. And he says, but every time you move into a field, you do something very creative and different. And I told him, I said, I appreciate you saying that because that is uh, coming from you. That is a, a statement I really appreciate. So I, I consider myself all of those. If anyone, if the research was missing, I wouldn't be whole. If the student influence was missing, I wouldn't be whole. And not only students, but also postdocs and visiting faculty that I've influenced. All of those things mean a lot to me. One of the great joys in science is that you get to you know, use discovery as a measure of success. You can discover something and publish a paper about it, or you can discover something and create a field or a subfield. You, your work has spanned uh, many disciplines. It's spanned many eras of this, this country and this world. Are there any challenges along the way that you've been particularly keen to work towards finding a solution for? I do know that I've gotten into areas that I never expected to get into. For example, uh, uh, I, am, I do fluorescence. So we were doing, uh, we were trying to find dyes that would selectively monitor cancer cells. In the process, we found that one of the dyes would selectively kill cancer cells and not bother normal cells. And so we started pursuing that and we figured out the mechanism that was going on. I'm saying all of that to say that Sometimes you start in one direction and end up in another direction entirely different. And that was very rewarding for us that we figured out this mechanism of uh, why this particular compound was. And it turned out to have to do with the fact that the molecules, I mean, the compound was uh, in the form of nanoparticles and it was endocytosis. It would go through the cancer cell in an endocytotic mechanism and become activated in the process of getting in the cancer cell. That same nanoparticle would get in the normal cell, but by a different mechanism. So it would never be activated. So it would sit there in the normal cell, not kill the normal cell, but immediately kill the cancer cells. And so that was a very interesting project and reflective of the kind of thing I talked about where you head off and research in that one direction and end up in an entirely different direction. In instrumentation, because that's a big part of not just spectroscopy, which you've talked about, but any fluorescent science, there's often this appeal, and it's, it's evident as to why it exists, to move towards commercialization in the form of a spin-out or startup. Has that been an appeal for you at any point in your career? 
the person who just knocked on my door and walked in is my middle son. And he keeps wondering why I'm not developing some of the things that I've done and, and startup companies and those sort of things. Well, that's not where my interest lies. My interest lies more in people as opposed to creating things to make more money. Because I look at those kinds of activities as pursuing money. I, I am making more money than I ever dreamed, at least before I retired. But even as I retired, I had, you know, I'm blessed in a lot of ways that people walk into my life from out of nowhere. Uh, when I was a young associate professor at Emory, there was this young man who kept coming to my office. And I came home and told my wife, this guy keeps coming to my office and talking about retirement. You know, I say, I'm, I'm 35 years old. Why should I be thinking about retirement? And but he, he pursued me enough that he convinced me I should start thinking about retirement at 35. Now, my wife and I became his first company, first customers when he started a company. And so we started it off. His company is now worth almost $2 billion. And so he uh, looks at us. He treats us very special because we were his first company. We were the first people to believe in him. And so what I'm saying is there are people sometimes in a, and my wife and I think we're blessed because there are people who interject themselves into our lives at appropriate time. So I'm, I'm, I'm living comfortably. I'm making as much money as I did when I was working, all because of that young man. And there have been people all along the way, as I mentioned. Now that I think about it, I haven't mentioned him in my mentoring book. I've got to bring him into my mentoring book <laughs> because he mentored me on uh, to this. I hadn't thought about that. So you're you're clearly staying busy, um, and, and we've talked. I'm afraid we may have in some cases, segmented your achievements in your work. I don't mean to do that, but the, it's, it's just incredibly vast. So that, that, that will happen. I want to end with a couple of questions that look at the present. You know, you're keeping busy, you're writing, you're, you're lecturing still on occasion. What's motivating you now in the science? I mean, you've, you've spent a life working in science and one of the great things about it is it keeps changing. It keeps advancing. Um, right. Is there anything in particular that, that has motivated you now or that you have a, a particularly strong eye on in the sciences? These latest, um, this latest research has had so many different directions that is going on. I don't know if you've seen this thing about gumbos. Yeah, I was hoping we could talk about gumbos. <laughs> a group of uniform materials based on. Yeah, it's on an acronym. Oh, right. It's an acronym. <laughs> yeah. Right. That research, I applied for an NSF grant and got a really good review and refunded it. And then I thought, okay. I'm not going to apply for a um, renewal. And all of a sudden, if you're doing good work, NSF will come to you and give you a creativity extension. You just write a couple of pages and you get additional money. So I ended up getting a creativity extension uh, with additional monies for two years. And so I have about two years worth of monies that I'm going to uh, pursue pursue uh, these efforts and and then I probably won't write any more uh, proposals. GUMBOS, which Warner mentioned last segment, stands for Group of Uniform Materials Based on Organic Salts. These solid-phase organic-based materials that Warner and his group introduced have opened new applications for tunable nanoparticles, 
called nanogumbos, as well as sensors, biomaterials, and energy. Though he retired early this year, Warner and his group remain active in this research area. More than research results, however, are the people and the memories. These, Warner says, are what matter most. Certainly, I'm, a, I'm proud of my research accomplishments, but I'm equally proud of the students who look at me and think that they would not, have, not be where they are were it not for me. I, I often get emails from students who will say, you might not remember me, but you really made a difference in my life when you did this, you know. So those kinds of statements are important to me. The other is I've graduated 68 PhDs. Half of those are women and more than a third of those are minority students. Again, that part of my record, I, I didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it, it turned out. And uh, I'm proud of that, that I, I've made a difference. I think I've made a difference. That concludes this week's episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to our news editor, Jake Saltzman, as well as to this week's sponsors. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, and let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website, photonics.com.